2: Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Wednesday, the 1st of March, 5 p.m. in the city of London. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Alex, uh, the uh, the dismal data on the inflation front continues. Uh, we saw the, uh, the ISM manufacturing number out of the United States a little earlier. Prices paid absolutely leaping over here in Europe. Uh, you've seen German inflation data today coming through at a headline level at 9.3%. The market was expecting that number to soften a little bit. Uh, this comes, of course, hot on the heels uh, of the, uh, the Spanish number yesterday and the French number yesterday, both of which pushed higher as well inflation is a theme hmm. that is unnerving equity markets, bond markets alike.
0: And similar here in the U.S., we'll get to this in, uh, also throughout the hour, but you had ISM manufacturing number coming out. Um, it was the best number since August of last year, but the prices paid is what jumped to over 50. Um, that was a problem. And now you saw the 10-year yield hit 4%. You saw equities continuing to roll over. So it's, it was a stagflation. Is it worse than that? We'll, we'll break it down
2: we will we'll talk about that a little bit later. The one bright spot today was the uh, was the Chinese data. Uh, so we saw Chinese manufacturing data today the PMI there showing a rapid reacceleration of that sector. On the back of that you see mining stocks on both sides of the Atlantic doing quite well, which is why today the FTSE 100 has outperformed. 7914 was the closing price there. We're going to talk about the component parts uh, of that market in just a moment. We'll get to persimmon. We'll get to the housing sector. Uh, but the miners holding that market up quite nicely. Uh, in the bond market, uh, the US uh, 10-year is rapidly approaching 4%. In Germany, you've got 2.7 on the 10-year today. Uh, the UK gilt market was a little bit of an outperformer actually. Andrew Bailey. Uncommittal A little earlier on whether or not we are mm. going to see rates going significantly higher from here. Uh, he's one of the certainly more dovish sounding central banks out there at the moment. We'll get to the UK housing market. I know everybody wants to talk about it in just a moment. Uh, Lucy Wilson is sitting next to me. Um, but uh, we'll uh, we'll talk about that in just a second. Before we do that. Let's get to Charlie Pellet.
3: Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Prices in UK shops rose at their highest rate since at least 2005 in February, as the cost of living crisis showed little sign of easing for cash-strapped consumers. The British retail consortium said shop price inflation accelerated to 8.4%, a record for an index that started in 2005 and an increase from 8% in January. Food price increases hit 14 showing that the pressure is highest on essential spending. A senior government minister says British energy suppliers must pass on the benefit of falling wholesale energy costs to consumers in the form of cheaper tariffs. Energy Secretary Grant Shapps called on suppliers to be ready to pass on the savings they'll be seeing in the markets as competition between natural gas and power providers returns. Britain's biggest business group has swung its weight behind the flexible working revolution warning executives that they should drop their opposition or risk losing the war for talent. Tony Denker, Director General of the Confederation of British Industry, said UK companies need to strike a new deal with workers to lure them back after being hamstrung by shortages. He's also calling for child care reforms and looser short-term immigration controls to resolve the UK's labor crisis. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London.
2: Thank you very much indeed, Charlie Pellet. So let's talk about UK housing. I'm going to start with Persimmon, then we're going to talk about the macro data. Uh, Persimmon out with numbers, the first of the big major house builders to be out with uh, with numbers. Today we get um, Taylor Wimpy tomorrow, we've got Barrett coming up later on this week. The stock finishing down over 12% today. Uh, this as the company basically more warned on margins. Uh, we're seeing top line slowing, obviously as we see um, mortgage costs rising, uh, but we've also got costs as a huge factor coming in uh, to the middle of the PL, uh, which is going to squeeze the story going forward from here. They've been relatively conservative coming into this, certainly managing the land bank uh, has been something they've done relatively carefully. Uh, we've also today seen data on mortgage approvals. We've, we've got a mortgage market that is grinding to a halt. We've got a market that feels like it's grinding to a halt right now. How close are we to this housing market tipping over? Uh, Bloomberg's Lucy White joins us now. She covers UK housing data for us here at Bloomberg. What have you made of what you've learned over the last 24 hours. I, the, the corporate story is not particularly pretty and the data to back it up isn't particularly pretty either.
1: It definitely seems like we're on track for a housing market slowdown. I mean, we, we'd already seen data hinting at this for the last few months, but you know that the um, 1.1% drop, uh, annual um, drop in house prices, is the first decline annually that we've seen since June 2020, which was obviously in the in the middle of the pandemic. Um, it's the sixth consecutive monthly drop as well, um, which brings us to the longest string of monthly drops uh, since 2008-2009, which is obviously when we were in the depth of the financial crisis. So this is is not a pretty picture for the housing market. Um, having said that, you know, it's, it's probably not going to be the, the, the drop in housing uh, prices. It's probably not going to be as bad as what we saw in, in 2009 purely because, you know, if we do get a recession, Um, unemployment's looking relatively uh, resilient at the moment.
0: So I thought that this was already supposed to happen. Like I I, I thought like the worst of the housing stuff was supposed to be the end of last year. So now how do we know when we've hit a kind of bottom?
1: I think we've obviously, you know, uh, mortgage rates did soar in the um, aftermath of the mini budget last year. And uh, although we've seen some sort of, you know, moderation since then, um, mortgage rates are still significantly higher than they were sort of in earlier in 2022. Um, so we're now seeing a lot of caution, especially with the cost of living crisis as well. We're seeing more caution filter through to buyers. And obviously, you know, um, the Bank of England is still, you know, debatably uh, hiking interest rates. Yeah. So a lot of people are still, you know, on the fence as to whether now is a good time to, to buy. The,
2: the UK is still a massively undersupplied market though. Mm. And, and the house builders... Are basically saying that they're going to halt work on sites. Does that lack of extra supply, which we're already short of, support prices more broadly in the market?
1: Potentially, yes. In the longer term, I think. In the in the shorter term, the next uh, year or so, that uh, that picture is a little murkier because we just have uh, so many people, you know, sitting so many potential buyers sitting on the fence and and not being prepared to part with their cash right now. Um, You know, perhaps. Homeowners um, who already have a house are, uh, you know, looking to remortgage and uh, seeing the the you know the the higher prices that it's costing to remortgage, and it you know m- now it might just not be a t- good time to to be selling up and purchasing.
0: What are you looking for from Taylor Wimpy tomorrow?
1: Um, I think it's probably going to be much of the same as we've seen for, for Persimmon today. Probably warnings on margin um, on margins, but probably you know uh, a little more optimism perhaps over the longer term would be would be nice to see. Mm.
2: In terms of, in terms of what is happening in the UK housing market, is this a slowdown that is that is a good thing? If if prices come down, there's been this kind of ongoing concern that basically affordability—we've got—we we have an affordability crisis. In in some ways, is this to be welcome? During the pandemic, we saw prices being bid up very very quickly. Is this just a, an unwind of that? Is this a healthy correction in a market? That that requires it to get it moving again.
1: Well, I suppose that all depends on who you ask, obviously. Sure. But, uh, you know, I mean, it, but a healthy market it, it, is a
2: market that has 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 liquidity to it.
1: Yeah, and um, first time buyers, I'm sure, will be very happy to hear of a fall in house prices. But um, it's worth pointing out that uh, homes are still becoming more unaffordable for first time buyers, despite the fall in prices. Uh, mortgage payments are now consuming around 39.4% of the average first time buyer. How does that compare with pay. rent? Uh, I don't have the figures for right, over no, because, because it seems
2: that actually they're becoming more. E- yeah, e- becoming... It,
1: that is true. Um, I mean, you know, the the rent we're see- at the same time that we're seeing house prices come down, we're also seeing rental costs increase as landlords put up their prices yeah. to um, to you know Compensate, cover their own yeah. costs. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the thirty nine point four percent that we're seeing for mortgage payments at the moment is well above the twenty nine point four percent average that we've seen in the long run.
2: It's great to catch up. Lucy, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Lucy White joining us on what is happening at the housing market. Obviously a subject that everybody is paying attention to right now. Uh, the Bank of England certainly focusing on that. Thank you very much indeed. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg.
4: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg
5: Radio.
6: What remains very positive in the UK is the dynamism of formation of new sectors and new, new economies. It remains a place of material uh, venture capital and, and seed investment. Uh, and it's one I think which we can point to and sort of say that will continue those conditions. The talent in the UK is extraordinary. The universities are very strong. And so I think those, those stay constant. They have nothing to do with a a Windsor, a Windsor framework, uh, but they uh, they are certainly not harmed by there being better relationships no. between the UK and the EU.
0: That was uh, David Livingstone, a Citigroup's EMEA CEO, speaking uh, to exclusively to Bloomberg. So Guy, I think that we pair this with Andrew Bailey for a second. So on the one hand, we could say that uh, an, an agreement on Northern Ireland is helpful to remove an overhang from the UK. So maybe the UK is investable. And then on the same time, we have uh, Andrew Bailey talking today about how um, higher rates are having an impact on the economy and that some quote further increase in bank rate may turn out to be appropriate. Um, But he urged caution about suggesting either that they're done with increasing the bank rate. But the market seemed to take that as dovish. If those two things are true, do you buy UK stocks?
2: So, um, well, let's talk about the gilt market, first of all. I think he was basically, he was equivocating today. I, sending a, But what he did today was in some way ratify current market pricing, but then not give a particularly clear signal on whether or not he thinks that further rate hikes are going to be required at this point. I would caution, he said, against suggesting either that we are done with increasing bank rates mm-hmm. or that we will inevitably need to do more in comparison with other central banks you heard what Nagel had to say today you've heard what our central banks uh, central bankers out of the US have been saying they are very much on the page of we need to do more the Bank of England is not on that page and therefore by definition in terms of the relative trade he sounds dovish
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. The relative trade. But if we're looking at 4% for the ECB and 6% for the Fed, which after the data today from the ISM and as well as German inflation, uh, seem increasingly potentially more likely, can can the BOE stop? Can they stop? Well, it, or are they going to have to keep going?
2: Well, there, there could be a currency impact, which certainly which certainly could be felt. And it was interesting that he was comparing and contrasting the 1970s with what we are seeing now, which would imply the mistake then was not doing enough and stopping too early, which which I thought was an interesting. I took that as being fairly hawkish. And maybe he is going to get caught up in the spiral. Maybe there is a downside for being the the kind of the odd person out in all of this. We're we're going to wait and see. The UK economy is not in a particularly great state right now. Um, Maybe there are better sort of tailwinds coming. But at the moment, the UK has a labour market shortage. It has a growth right. problem. It has a productivity. I, there are just a multitude of factors that are coming into play.
0: Well, then, to, I mean, to that point, and we talked about this uh, on Monday. Once we had that Brexit deal, like you know, really coming through, is that the big issues when it comes to energy and when it comes to labour shortages are not addressed? Like that's not going to be fixed because of any Northern Ireland agreement. It's just not. No. Um, and those are also two things that uh, the the Bank of England also can't really control.
2: No, they can't. But but tone is important here, and I think I think there's been such a sort of febrile state in the UK for such a long time post Brexit that any kind of any kind of downplaying of that tension, I think, has the potential to lead to more positive outcomes. There's, the papers here are talking about the possibility for financial a financial services deal to be done on the back of mm-hmm. the Northern Ireland deal being done. Does it open the the gate to more more cooperation? Sunak has succeeded in making the the, the, the the Northern Ireland issue technical, which is a huge breakthrough. It's not emotional. It's not being driven by febrile politics anymore. He's making it technical. And if he can do that in other areas, yes. that could be a more positive aspect but that the UK could take advantage
0: of. The other side of that is has already priced in. I mean, you take a look at the FTSE 250 versus the FTSE 100. They both had really nice runs, but you've seen a lot, uh, a huge rally in the FTSE 250. I appreciate that we're off the... The, the highs that we saw uh, last year but nonetheless have we already kind of priced in the stuff and we priced in the stuff what more are we going to need to see from Sunak to really get another boost higher
2: I, I don't know is the honest answer but if you a, did a, a know po-
0: then you should definitely quit your job
2: well yeah or stay here and talk about
0: it or, which would okay, be fun sure. mm-hmm.
2: that, oh. that would be something I could do as well because it's quite fun chatting away talking talking kind of as we do about all these different and interesting things we should probably note that at some point soon this show will be will be coming to an end I drop that bombshell now
0: and break time this is Bloomberg this
4: is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio
0: good evening you're listening to The Cable Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio I'm Alex Steele in New York Guy Johnson uh, is over in London so just so you know we'll be with you on The Cable until this Friday then Monday Monday We will no longer be with you. We'll discuss more about our parting uh, later on in the week. Um, Okay, so the headline over in Europe was German inflation uh, surprising to the upside in February. Consumer prices up by 9.3 percent from a year ago, up from January, all driven by services, yeah, and food costs, but also uh, services. Now, the bond market, as you can guess, you look at the German uh, 10-year bond yield, up by about six basis points. All of that in keeping with what we saw from uh, Spain and France uh, yesterday. So does it mean that the hawks are right that the Hawks have been right. Um, European Central Bank Governing Council member Joachim Nagel um, said that investors are getting a better understanding of the challenge in returning inflation to the 2% target. The swaps market's now pricing in 4% terminal rate uh, for the ECB fully and that you're not gonna, it's going to continue to rise uh, throughout this year. Now, Maria Tadeo from Bloomberg sat down with Nagel uh, and talked about this inflation problem. And I- I- if there is still too much optimism, the ECB can do its job quickly and fast.
7: It it seems to be the case that inflation is very stubborn. And that is bringing me to the point that monetary policy has to be more stubborn Mm. than the inflation. So it looks like, and it's clear for me, that what we have to do for the March meeting of the governing council of the euro system, and also beyond this meeting, I think there's more necessary. This is the main message I take from the high inflation numbers,
5: and when you say in March, essentially you know very well that the idea is a continuation of fifty basis points. Uh, I wonder if you would push back against that. And when it comes to the sequencing uh, going forward, because a lot of what happens in March, it's already understood to some extent uh, what that meeting will bring. But you talk about significant going forward. I wonder in the sequencing, how do you picture that?
7: I think it's it's not fair to speculate what is the sequencing beyond March. But it looks like for the moment that 50 basis points for the March meeting, very necessary. And then beyond the March meeting, we have to wait the data for our March meeting. But it looks like what I see on the inflation side, that the inflation outlook might be on a too high level for the period for the months after our March meeting. So it looks like what I just alluded to, that 50 basis points for the March meeting, yes, and then we will see. But I believe that significant rate hikes beyond March are necessary
5: and, and and that takes me back again to this change in uh, this week of around this 4% uh, pickup in, in rates. Of course, I know you're not going to say where you see that peak uh, going, but I wonder, in terms of the overall picture, does that reflect more the situation as you see it, that the reaction we had in the previous uh, central bank policy meeting that happened, mm. well, a month ago, where there seemed to be a clash between what was going on in, in markets mm. and the message that the bank was trying to convey?
7: This definitely, there was an interesting development. I think often markets have the tendency to overshoot to a certain extent. So there was maybe this overoptimism. So it, I believe now the markets really they got the message that we are really. So you're stick-
5: more comfortable with the narrative now. I'm very,
7: I'm much more comfortable now how the markets see our role. We are really in in the position that we, as central banks of the Euro system, we stick to our mandate. We have to bring inflation down. And I will not speculate what is maybe the terminal rate. This doesn't help for the moment. What I see is that inflation is still too high. And there is a journey. At the end, we have to to really go this way. And this journey is not over.
5: And one of the reasons why setting policy on a European level, on a Euro-area level, is, of course, you have to balance so many different economies. Uh, Clearly for you, you make it clear, inflation is is incredibly important. It's a single mandate, and and that's your goal. But at the same time, there needs to be some harmony in in the Euro-area. Do you feel you're striking the right balance at this point?
7: I'm pretty much of the opinion that we are really... That all 20 countries of the US system, we have the same commitment. And I think the message we gave over the past nine months, this message was pretty strong. We started the rate hikes in July. We did four more rate hikes after the July meeting. More will come. So I see a joint understanding within the euro system, within these 20 central banks, these 20 countries, what is our task and what we have to do for the next months?
5: And you say no active bond selling. But what about an early uh, end to the PEP reinvestments? Is that something that... Uh, do you feel at least merits now a serious conversation?
7: Maybe not. I, I don't want to speculate mm-hmm. about the PEP. What I guess is necessary that we, take, we took the decision in, in our last meeting to start the re- reduction of our asset holdings in the APP, 15 billion every month. I believe that could be more or less, there's a good way to, to get this into the market. The market will understand why this is necessary. But I believe beyond that, From July on, we need more than 15 billion each month. We we can do maybe 20. I think this is one of the things that I believe is of utmost importance. And then later on, maybe next year, we can talk about the, the PEP.
5: Okay, and just as a final question, on the bigger picture, the year started with a bang. There was this idea that the worst is over for the European economy, that finally a lot of the the big problems at the end of the year that we saw in 2022 may have cleared, but you still say, at least from the German perspective, you don't see major improvement for the time being and in fact a contraction for Q1. Do you worry perhaps Uh, market participants got ahead of themselves, they wanted to see good news, but the picture has not fully cleared? There's so many challenges.
7: I think we are still in a very complicated situation. Mm -hmm. I think complacency doesn't help too much in a situation like this. I think we all hope that this horrible war, this war of Russia against Ukraine, is over soon. This would help us a lot, but it looks like that this is the case. And so we have to deal with a geopolitical situation that is very uncertain, very difficult, and 2023 will Will again will bring us a lot of let me say challenges. It, it will stay like a, or it will be a bumpy road. This is my this is my my takeaway.
2: Jochen Nagel speaking to Maria today at the Bundesbank event a little bit earlier on today. Alex, he, he's basically signalling he thinks not just one fifty basis points uh, hike to come. He's talking about significant further hikes to come. The market is now pricing in four percent that the data are supporting the hawks at the moment.
0: Um. Yeah. I guess the question is, inflation can go up and it can also go down. <laughs> so, like, is this going to be yeah. the case that, like, next month, if all of a sudden now we're at like 9.1, are we all going to be like, yeah. oh man, the doves have totally crushed this one? Like, I, I literally feel like we're bing bonging on, on any of that data but, point. But, it goes uh, up, yeah. it goes down.
2: But but this whole idea that it was going to come down quickly—that's what I think we're being. That I think is definitely off the table.
0: That has definitely Absolutely. been priced out. Uh, we'll talk about the ISM data uh, in the U.S. next. This is Bloomberg.
4: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Quick check in here, U.S. markets. Uh, the S&P is still down one-tenth of one percent. The NASDAQ up by two-tenths, but we had a pretty nice reversal here. At one point, we were below the 200-day moving average uh, for the S&P, and then we kind of bounced uh, back above that. Particularly impressive because of the data that we got out, which we will get to in just a moment. Uh, yields, though, still pushing higher, and the, the 10-year yield is now 397. That is, again, off the highest of the session. At one point, we touched 4 percent, the highest since November uh 10th. It's really metals and mining that are helping lead the way higher on the S&P. You can make the argument that part of that is that China uh, data story. We got better than expected uh, PMI manufacturing numbers. But, you know, some say maybe it's not all going to be about metals and mining. Maybe it's about the consumers. Maybe it's about flying. Anyway, we're going to dig through all of this within the last half hour. Um, let's now go to Charlie Pellet for some other headlines, and then we'll get back to that data.
3: Hi, thank you very much. And here's what's going on. Alex Steele, UK mortgage approvals fell to their lowest since the financial crisis. Housing crash, when excluding the pandemic uh, as soaring interest rates and the cost of living cooled activity. The Bank of England said lenders approved 39,637 home loans in January 2.2% 2.2% fewer than the previous month. That is the lowest level since early 2009, except uh, when the uh, UK's first uh, COVID lockdown, when the property market was closed. Rescuers in Greece are searching through flattened, burned-out carriages for survivors and bodies after a passenger train and a freight train crashed head-on in the central part of the country, killing at least 36 people and injuring scores. Transport Minister Costas. Lees has resigned, saying he felt it was, quote, his duty to step down as a basic indication of respect for the memory of the people who died so unfairly. A mansion in London's Mayfair neighborhood has sold for about 52 million pounds as part of a UK enforcement action. The house on Hill Street, one of the most desirable streets in the exclusive district, comes with about 20 bedrooms and a swimming pool. The property was built in the 1700s and its previous residents include lawmakers, dukes and barons. That is the latest from the News Desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York.
0: I want a swimming pool. Yeah,
3: only 52 million? I Not mean, bad.
0: Shh. Chump change. You're gonna yeah. need it Chump to put chain. all the clothes
2: in. See,
0: so <laughs> yeah. a house that size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine how many walk-ins I'll have for that. How many? How much room for my coats? Guy's trying to make fun of me because I almost, almost bought a coat yesterday.
2: Really? But uh, I, how no, many no. Coats? another, another coat? I know. Oh.
0: I bought a bunch in Florence, is what he's saying. So this, is, this is where it's coming from. All, but I all, didn't. The point is, I didn't.
3: All. But all I can see, all I can visualize <laughs> is a coat in Florence, and all I see is big, many, 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 many euro signs flashing in front of me. That huh? must have been
2: one expensive coat. I bought six. It wasn't one, it was, it was uh, six. You did not. <laughs> I did. You did not. <laughs>
0: One was for my husband. You had to husband. buy a
2: suitcase to put it
3: all in.
0: <laughs> I did. I bought a suitcase to put it all in.
3: You know, I, I, I've got a coat, that is, a winter coat that is so ratty that a colleague, on, a colleague said, you know, you really should go to the tailor and have that fixed. I'm like, I only wear it in the winter. What, what do I need to do with it? You know, I'll walk around, whatever. Anyway, so you uh, didn't wind up buying the coat.
0: Yesterday? No, I did buy the six in Florence.
3: <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm stunned, yeah. guy. I'm speechless.
0: I speechless Charlie. Um all right, Charlie, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. Um let's move on, shall we? Um and get to this ISM data. So um uh, ISM in the US uh ticked up to about forty seven point seven uh in February. That was The it it was up from the weakest print that we saw since May of 2020. It was the best print since August. Sure, it's still below 50, but it was pretty good. You did wind up having though an increase in prices paid, and as Bloomberg Economics was pointing out, it basically means that we're seeing slower goods disinflation, which goes uh, to Guy's point that we're not seeing inflation come down super super fast. So we got the privilege to talk to Tim Fiore of the ISM right after the numbers broke.
6: If you're a demand and growth advocate, this is a really good report. This is our best performance number since August of last year. Uh, Especially on the demand side, you see that our new order number, you know, rebounded, came back from a, a pretty low low last month. Our new export order number almost passed 50. Our customer inventory number went into the high end of too low, which is good. And our backlog grew again, but it's still relatively weak. If you're an advocate of seeing a quick end to inflation, this is not a great report, as you noted. Uh, we're over 50 percent here, 50 points on our prices index. If you look at that, what it's, what it's really saying is that about 70 percent of our respondents are reporting the same or lower prices. But the, side, the other side of that is 25 to 30 percent of them are saying that they reported higher prices for the month. And I think Mike had it right, there is act, activity in the commodities market. That is driving that up the fortunate thing is it's not energy related it's more steel and aluminum yeah mm-hmm. and i think looking into the detail of it a lot of it has to do with capacity being managed more effectively by the participants in that sector
2: tim good morning it's guy are those higher prices being passed on at the present time it's not really
6: clear i think as we ended last year and came into january there was a feeling that Generally, companies would be successful and continuing to pass it on. But I think what it's really saying is we've reached a level of price stability that probably isn't meeting expectations of the people who are responsible to manage inflation. Now, the manufacturing community is not responsible for managing inflation. They're responsible for growing and being profitable. So this report kind of says that, you know, they're pushing forward, mm-hmm. things are feeling good. As I reported last month and a month before, we thought that uh, half one would be a bumpy period, half two would be better is still pretty consistent on that. I don't think that anybody is responding that's saying that we're taking these price increases and we're taking them on our own. So from a manufacturing standpoint, it's a good report mm-hmm. from a inflation and an ending of this stress around what is the right price level? We're not quite there.
0: So we'll get to growth in just a sec. I have one more quick question on prices. If it's due to mostly steel and aluminum versus energy, steel and aluminum is going to be much more structural in many ways um, than, say, energy prices, which was a cyclical kind of bump. Um, did you get any read through on that from companies as to how long those kind of prices would stay high?
6: Well, we've been growing for the last couple of months on the spot market. We're actually 50% up on the low of steel, which occurred late last year. I think it was probably September, October. We got back to about 650 a short ton on hot roll. We're now at uh, a thousand dollars a ton, which wow. is surprising because the demand really isn't tremendous. So, what's causing that? Well, what's causing that is really capacity coming out, so that you know the manufacturers can remain uh, profitable. So, you know, the other thing is, is I've been reporting on the call of uh, how many industry sectors are actually contracting and how many are contracting under 45. And I think that 45 number. It's a set number by me, but anything 45 and less is concerning. So we ended the month at 80% of our industry sectors contracting, which was down from 86% back in January. But more importantly, we only had 10% contracting at 45 or less. Mm. In the month of January, we had 26%. And in the month of uh, December, we had 36%. So it's a huge change there. And that kind of indicates to me that we're running forward. You know, manufacturing is feeling pretty good, but we haven't conquered the inflation issue.
2: We certainly have not. Uh, Tim Fiore, talking to Alex and I a little bit earlier on, it's his day to the ISM numbers that we spend so much time pouring through. Um, in some ways, this is this is a really bad report. Yes, the the growth kind of side of things has improved, uh, but it is still fairly flat. Yet inflation, the inflationary aspects of this report, ticking higher, which is why a lot of people are, uh, uh, are labelling this data, Alex, as stagflationary. You're not getting the growth, but you are getting the inflation, and that's that's not a great combination.
0: And that's why no, it's not. And that's why you saw um, a, a big kind of re-rating in in the market for that. Um, I think though the question winds up becoming, in terms of digging in deeper to that, is the wage part. So we talked to Bonnie yep. Bouajja of UBS, and he he had a really interesting point that the wage price spiral could be much more intense in Europe, for example, because we see negative wage uh, growth for so long versus the U.S. Yep. I, 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 we didn't get a good indication uh, from Tim about wages, and I, I feel like that's uh, obviously the critical piece.
2: Yeah. And, and, and the other thing about Europe is that, that a lot of the wage negotiation is, is done at a very elevated level. You get big unions negotiating kind of for the whole sector, uh, and that makes it much more structural and difficult to deal with for the ECB. This is Bloomberg.
4: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
2: So yesterday, Goldman Sachs had an investor day. Today, it is Tesla's turn. After the bell, uh, it will kick off. And, well, expectations are high. This is a stock that has been on a tear, an absolute tear, since the start of the year. Can this investor day continue that momentum? Or is reality about to, well, become real? Sean O'Kane... Uh, who covers electric vehicles and startups at Bloomberg News, joins us now. Sean, as I say, the stock has been on a tear, therefore expectations are high. The bar is high for Tesla. Can it deliver today? What are investors expecting?
8: Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, I mean, I think it's sort of two-pronged. I think we're going to see a lot, but I think there's going to be two big themes. One, uh, you know, really just Tesla talking about battery capacity, um, energy generation, essentially, uh, how much can they scale it over the coming decade? Elon Musk has given some pretty big goals uh, in the past, but I think we're going to get the most specifics that we've seen out of that. We might even hear some details about how deep down the supply chain they want to go. Uh, you know, we, we broke last September, some news about them wanting to uh, do a lithium refinery in Texas. And so we know that they're at least willing to go that far. And News has also reported some talks between Tesla and uh, a lithium miner. So I think we're going to get a lot of that. And then I think the other part of it that will probably be more impactful potentially to the stock lease in the near term is probably new products. And, and really seeing this new vehicle platform that Tesla uh, has teased and Elon Musk mm-hmm. has teased, they're going to show off. Uh, and did, so exactly what shape that takes, I think, is going to be a, a huge factor.
0: Sean, did we learn anything from Rivian looking ahead to Tesla? I mean, I, I realize Tesla is much bigger and much more established, but did we learn anything
8: yeah, I mean, I think I think Rivian's showing the the struggle. I mean, Rivian's sort of like Tesla already and Elon, Elon Musk always sort of speedrun different things as they enter new markets, and Rivian's kind of doing a similar thing. Uh, Rivian's just showing how important it is and how much it can pay off uh, if you really put your nose to the grindstone and, and really integrate like as much as Tesla has done over the last decade and a half. And so, you know, it's costing a lot of money for Rivian to try to vertically integrate on the same kind of level as Tesla, which is why we see such big losses from them. Um, But, you know, Tesla's benefiting and has been benefiting over the last five years or so, arguably, uh, from that pain that they had in trying to take on everything themselves uh, from the get-go.
2: How involved is Elon Musk still at Tesla? Um, We've always had the whole Twitter saga, now there's a story floating around that he wants to do AI or do more on AI. How involved he is? Is he in this product?
8: I mean, by all accounts, he's pretty involved. Although, you know, one thing that we've written about a couple of times over the last few months is that he brought in, um, you know, one of the clearest sort of 2nd in commands that he's had in a long time at Tesla, and Tom Zhu, who, uh, you know, was essentially running the up the, the ground-up operations in China. Um, getting not only their, their charging network up and running over there, but the factory outside Shanghai, um, so that he has someone sort of alongside him and, and sort of overseeing the North American operations in a way that he didn't before, you know, leaves some room for him to be able to step away and focus a little bit more on, on Twitter and things like that. But, you know, uh, even though he's, even though the account doesn't exist on Twitter anymore, there are still accounts that track, uh, Elon Musk's real-time jet flights and you know a lot of them lately just still sort of jump between Austin and San Francisco. So I think he's got a lot of time invested in Tesla right now and a lot of time invested in Twitter and uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's left some of these other operations that he has to uh, to some of his other deputies.
0: Sean quickly, do we want him to get into AI?
8: I mean, they, they sort of have to. I mean, the the promise of Tesla and the value that he said could reach, you know, twice Saudi Aramco really depends on uh, being able to make the cars drive themselves and, and you know, all of the sort of benefits that come along with that um, as far as the economics go. And. You know, to be able to do that, you need to be heavily invested in AI. You need to be able to, you know, down to the studs, know how that works and develop how that works. So, yeah, it's a huge piece of what they're going to probably talk about today as well.
0: Sean, really appreciate it. Thanks so much, uh, Sean O'Kane, who covers electric vehicles and startups for Bloomberg News. Thank you as well. We'll be looking forward and uh, covering all of that for you here on Bloomberg Television and Radio during uh, the Investor Day for Tesla. All right, coming up, data from China, pretty good. We'll get the outlook. This is Bloomberg.
4: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So we talked about it earlier, the China PMI manufacturing data. So China's economy uh, is showing signs of a stronger rebound. So you've got COVID restrictions uh, are being abandoned and manufacturing posted its biggest improvement in more than a decade. You even had services activity climbing and the housing market stabilizing. And the market's trying to work through like how much of that is real. How much of that can you build on and how much of that is a one-off? Plus, if you have the rest of the world slowing, can China continue to post these kind of numbers? So joining us now to discuss is Tom Orlick. Uh, He joins us now. Um, He's Bloomberg Economics' chief economist. Hey, Tom, what did you make of the data today, your biggest takeaway?
4: So these were some really strong numbers uh, coming out of China overnight, Alex, um, the manufacturing PMI, the services PMI, both pointing to a strong expansion, both coming in considerably higher than market expectations. Um, so this is good news on China, for China. It's a reflection of the lifting of the COVID controls at the end of last year. It's also a reflection of additional support. The government is pumping into the economy, especially for the property sector, um, at the same time alex as you mentioned there are some caveats um the first is the reopening boost well that's a one off we're not going back to the boom times in china we're seeing a kind of temporary surge in activity as life gets back to normal um the second caveat is the beginning of the year is a kind of confusing time for china data You've got the Lunar New Year holiday, which really introduces some very unpredictable seasonal effects. So these data are positive, but we're really going to have to wait till the end of the first quarter to get a cleaner read.
2: In terms of what the Chinese authorities are going to make of these early numbers, how are they going to react to them, do do you think, Tom? So... There's a big constraint for China's
4: policymakers, Guy. um, And that is the kind of the consequence of their past missteps, right? So over the last 15 years, there's been a surge in borrowing in China. There's been massive overbuilding in the property sector. um, And these things are now both dragging on growth and limiting policy space. Um, What that means is that PBOC doesn't have much room to cut interest rates to support the recovery. Um, My guess is that officials in Beijing looking at these numbers are going to be breathing a sigh of relief. They don't have much space to stimulate the economy. The PMI data is suggesting that the recovery is robust and doesn't need that much stimulus.
0: Um, Do we think that the recovery is really going to come in domestic part of China versus International, in that, like the fact that like Freeport was rallying today, or you had metals and mining rallying today, seemed a little off as to what a reopening and a stronger China really means.
4: So, there's a two way dynamic here, Alex. Um, uh, On the one hand, um, you've got to expect that a Europe which is still pretty weak, consequence of high energy prices. Last year, ECB tightening, a United States which is slowing as a consequence of the Fed's fight against inflation, these are going to mean a weak global economy, which is going to mean weak demand for Chinese exports. That's a drag, we think, over the course of 2023. Going in the other direction, though, if China does a bit better, if the Chinese consumers are spending, if Chinese property developers start building again, that's a bit of a boost for global demand. That would be good news for the multinationals selling into China. Good news for the commodity producers digging and mining for the Chinese industrial engine.
2: What does this mean for the rest of the world, Tom?
4: So, I think you've got to think about it in two different ways, Guy. Um, the sort of the immediate sort of implication is: well, global growth this year is not going to be that great, right? Perhaps it's a little bit better than we thought it was a few weeks ago. Europe might have slow growth rather than recession. The United States started the year with a bit more momentum than we thought. But still, 2023 is set to be a pretty weak year for the global economy. If China does better, that's going to give a boost to global demand. That's good news. The flip side of that, and something we've been warning about for a while, is, well, if China does strong, does better than expected. That's a big driver of demand, especially for commodity prices. Mm-hmm. If we see oil prices starting to rally, and we saw a bit of that today following the PMI data, well, perhaps that adds to the inflationary impulse at exactly the wrong moment for the Fed and the ECB.
0: What are you expecting from the NPC next week?
4: So... National People's Congress kicking off in Beijing on March the 5th. Um, We'll get the usual round of data. We'll get a growth target for the year. We're expecting that to be 5, 5.5%. We'll get a budget deficit target for the year. We're expecting the government to slightly rein in its fiscal support. Um, The big thing everyone's watching for, though, is the personnel changes. You've got a raft of Pro pro market internationally engaged policymakers like Li Keqiang, Liu He, Yi Gang, um, either definitely heading towards retirement or potentially heading towards retirement. Their replacements, folks like Li Chang, Li Hefeng, well, they're more known for their close association with Xi Jinping and their deep knowledge of the Chinese political system than they are for any particular school of economic thought. Um, So the risk is this is a tilt away from pro-market policies, a tilt towards rule by one man. Um, The hope, the potential silver lining is, well, if she has people around him in the top economic policy jobs who he knows and he trusts, perhaps there's an opportunity for that team to get more stuff done.
2: In terms of does this have any impact on geopolitics? Do you think, Tom? What is happening with the economy? Does it embolden or kind of dissuade the Chinese leadership from taking further steps on the geopolitical front?
4: You know, um, I think that's a really great question, Guy. Um, uh, my sense is that geopolitics and the business cycle in China are happening on sort of separate tracks. The geopolitics track is that's something they think about in terms of decades. Not months, not not even years. The ups and downs of the business cycle. That's something they think about as sort of something they have to think about right now, right? So, let's say the PMI data crashes down to to forty eight next month, and the Chinese recovery hits the yep. skids. Is that going to strengthen Washington's hand with Beijing? I don't think so.
0: Tom, Tom Jinx, you go.
2: Very nice as ever. Thank you very much indeed. That wraps things up for Alex and for me tomorrow we get inflation data out of the Eurozone. That is a big, big number. This is Bloomberg.